Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Father, you're so good to us. You are great to never let us forget that. I pray that you would show us in a mighty way this morning how great you truly are. Reach down deep into our hearts, our souls, those places that we even keep from you. Lord, that you may expose our sin, Lord, and expose our need for you. And Lord, that your light would just shine and permeate down to the very cells of our bodies, Lord, that we may see how wonderful and how great you are. Father, I pray that you bless as we give. And Lord, I pray that you would just give back to us in a way that shows your faithfulness and increase our trust and faith in you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 15 as we'll finish out this chapter. We are getting close to the end of our study of Mark. Mark chapter 15 and verse 40 to 47 this morning. Death. Death is final. It's the end of the story. Benjamin Franklin wrote that in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. The only thing after one dies is left is the funeral. There are many different kinds of funerals and memorials I have attended and performed many different types over the years. Some have been joyous occasions with family and friends shedding tears of sorrow and joy, filled with laughter as they recount their favorite memories and moments of their loved ones. Others are filled with moments of intense despair with family and friends crying and wailing at the loss of their loved ones. Some of you are old enough, just a few of you might be old enough to remember the funeral processions of President John F. Kennedy or his brother Bobby, Martin Luther King Jr., or maybe some of the other presidents that have gone before. People lined up for miles around to pay their respects. We see it when today when a police officer or a firefighter dies in the line of duty as their brothers and sisters will line the highways and the bridges standing at attention as they are bring back or transported to their final resting place. There's something about those that just get our attention and get into the emotions of us. I've experienced that type of outpouring of love and respect personally twice when it came to a funeral. One was a childhood friend of both Don and I, a man named Ron Hant, who died, oh, before he was 30, I believe. I remember going to the funeral and people were just lined for about a quarter of a mile down just waiting to get in. I remember the memorial for my brother. It was so large, they had to move it into a place that was kind of like uh, what we call the pond. As people from all sorts of states came and shared. I was re-watching his memorial service. Yesterday was his birthday. He would have been 51. And just listening to the people whose lives were touched. And even uh, yesterday, coming through Facebook, his Facebook page is still up. And people just still outpouring their love for him and what he meant to their lives and how he changed their lives. It's just powerful and we've all experienced that. Even here when Mr. Anderson passed away and 
others. In today's passage, Mark records the burial of Jesus. Last week, Jesus said, it is finished. He gave up his breath and he died. But in this account, there is no fanfare. There is no moving speeches at the burial, the funeral of Jesus. There is no wonderful stories from people sharing how Jesus impacted their lives. There is no, the burial of Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, was very quick and quiet. Peter's mother-in-law, who was healed by Jesus, was not there. The little girl that Jesus raised from the dead, her and her family were not there. The man who had a legion of demons inside of him and was miraculously cast out by Jesus did not attend the funeral of Jesus. The afflicted woman with blood who touched him, knowing that if she could just touch him, was not there to give him her regards. Not one of the people who were fed with the feeding of the 5,000 attended the memorial, the funeral of Jesus. The deaf and the dumb men were not there. The lepers who were healed by Jesus did not attend, even though they could have, since they were now clean. The blind men near Jericho, who were touched by Jesus and gave back their sight, did not attend a funeral or memorial for Jesus. For Jesus was buried quickly and quietly in a borrowed tomb by just a few followers. The narrative here moves to a crescendo as Mark recounts the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ. It is the glorious conclusion as we come to this part. It's about triumph. It's no longer about the suffering, but it's the glorious conclusion of what he wrote early in the gospel when he said, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. And Jesus' own testimony that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we see he has. Jesus had prophesied about his death and burial and resurrection three times, now in Mark. And now he records these events to show that Jesus was the Messiah, but also to give evidence that he truly died. And that he was buried and rose from the dead as he said he would. Last week we saw that in his life and ministry and death, Christ accomplished our salvation in two ways. Remember that? Through his active obedience and through his passive obedience. In Christ's passive obedience of being humiliated in the cross and being a substitute for us, he gave us forgiveness of sin. While his active obedience, his trusting in his Father and doing all that his Father commanded him, he earned our righteousness. You and I must remember as we go through this passage today and last week that even though it might have been Judas who betrayed Jesus, even though it was the religious leaders who prompted the crowd to call for the death of Jesus, even though it was Pilate who gave the death sentence and the Roman soldiers who carried out or administered the punishment, man did not kill Jesus. Man did not kill Jesus. John chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus said, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. 
In this we find that Jesus willingly gave up his life in order that we might be redeemed, be reconciled with God, and be made right with God. He was humiliated that we might receive honor as children of God. And he suffered that we might find salvation. For God's glory and man's good, Jesus died. Father, we come before you and we just ask that you would just give us patience as we work through this scripture. Open up our minds and hearts as we read something very familiar and usually a part of the crucifixion and the burial of your son. Let me speak words that are edifying and build up. Give us wisdom and discernment to know the difference between my opinion and what your word says. But above all, I pray that we not quench the spirit but Father, that we would respond to what you call us to this morning. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. Mark now records that some of the followers of Jesus actually witnessed the crucifixion, the burial, and resurrection. You might remember Jesus' prediction that all the disciples would scatter, and they all did, except for John. John would stay at a little bit of a distance throughout the event. But what we're seeing here, Mark now turns, and he's going to talk about some witnesses who actually witnessed the events that we're reading. In Mark chapter 15, verses 40 through 47, follow along if you would with me where he says there were also women looking on from a distance. This is speaking about Jesus on the cross. Among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Josie and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and they ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now I'd like for you to move to verse 47 just for continuity. Now Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where Jesus were laid. Now what we see is he identifies three witnesses here to the crucifixion of Christ, and then two or three that are going to be there at the burial, and then eventually at the resurrection. Many of us know Mary Magdalene. She was the woman that Jesus had cast seven demons out of in Luke chapter 8. We know of Mary, mother of James, the younger or the less, and Joseph. This is a, a Mary we don't know much about, but then he also introduces Salome. She's the mother of James and John, the apostles, the disciples. These are women who follow Jesus. Now, as you may recall, as I said earlier, the disciples, all the disciples except John, had scattered and deserted Jesus out of fear for the people. Only these women had remained. They had followed Jesus to Jerusalem from Galilee as they traveled as a group to the Passover. They were part of the crowd that, that laid out palm branches and said, Hail, this is Jesus, the King. They were financial supporters of his ministry. And it's interesting, and we'll look at it a little bit more next week, that they're using these women because typically in that culture, women would not be recognized as official or legal witnesses. But in this case, Mark is saying these women were there. They saw what was happening. They became eyewitnesses of the fact that Jesus was truly buried as they most likely helped in preparing his body. Now we move to the setting of the burial, verse 42. In verse 42, the setting, Mark says, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. Now the Jewish Sabbath begins at sundown. Now Jesus had gave up his life, according to the Gospels, around 3 p.m., which gives them a, a small window of three to four hours to bury Jesus. 
And it was customary in those times, especially even today in the Jewish customary, to bury the body before sundown, especially before the Sabbath, which began on that Friday. It was part of the law handed down by God through Moses, where he says, if a man has committed a crime, punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on that tree. But you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that your Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Whereas the Roman custom in those days was just to let the body hang there until it rotted away as a warning to everyone who passed away. So Jesus really, to the Roman standard, to the Roman culture, they were just going to leave Jesus and the two thieves and just let the birds have their way with them and let it just be done until eventually as a warning. But in this passage, we're now introduced to a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a righteous man looking for the kingdom of God. He was a follower of Christ, but he was a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared his brother, the Sanhedrin, the council. What we see in Luke is that he was not there for that midnight early illegal trial of Jesus and that he buried Jesus in his own tomb. Now, none of the Gospels record any previous interaction between Joseph and Jesus. Yet Mark here is telling us that he exhibited both courage and care with the body of Jesus. And what I want to share with you is four ways in which we see the boldness of Joseph of Arimathea. And we see it in verse 43 as he solicits Pilate for the body of Jesus. Look at verse 43 with me. He says, Joseph of Arimathea, he was a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. He took courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Now, this is without Joseph's request. You and I must realize that Jesus would have been buried as a common criminal in an unmarked grave. Eventually, after they would leave Jesus up, it would be a warning. The birds and everything else would have their way with him. They would eventually take him down from the cross and they would just throw him in some type of mass grave or graves with other criminals. This is kind of ironic as Judas, who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. We read in Matthew, once he realized what he did, he took that change and says, I don't want it. And he threw it at the feet of the religious leaders. But the chief priest, it says in Matthew, taking those pieces of silver said, it's not lawful to put these into the treasury. It is blood money. So they took counsel and they bought a potter's field. As a burial place for strangers, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. Jesus himself would have been buried normally in that type of grave. It was an irregular request that someone who was not a family member would come and ask for the body. He's not a family member. Jesus' family did not come to Pilate and request the body of Jesus, most likely due to the fact that they had not accompanied him to Jerusalem. You might remember that Jesus' brothers and sisters thought that Jesus was crazy. In Mark, it says, when his family heard what Jesus was doing, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. He probably didn't even travel with them. What's the use? They didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't believe he was the Son of God. He's just our brother. So there's no family. No one left 
to claim the body. The disciples themselves have deserted Jesus. They're in fear. They're in hiding. Mary, his mother, who was there, would have been too distraught to be able to take care of the body of Jesus. So in boldness, he comes and asks for the body of Christ. The second thing we see is not only does he solicit the body, but he shows his boldness and his courage by supervising the preparation of Jesus' body. In verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus should have died already. And he summoned the centurion and he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the course to Joseph. Now what surprises Pilate here is that Jesus is already dead. What are you telling me he's already dead? It's, only, it's been only six hours. You see, crucifixion usually lasted days, not hours. A man could stand and be laid at that cross for days, struggling to breathe before they finally expired. We see in scriptures that the soldiers actually had to go break the legs of the two thieves in order for them to die. And that way, they no longer could push up to get breath and to exhale. And eventually they would expire. But when they came to Jesus to break his legs, they see that he is already dead. How could he be dead so much, so quickly? John tells us that Joseph comes and gets the body. He tells us in his gospel in John that Nicodemus assisted Joseph. You may remember Nicodemus in the gospel of John. He's another Pharisee, a co-worker or co-laborer with Joseph. He comes and he helps Joseph in preparing Jesus' body for burial. As a rich man, Joseph most likely supervised his servants. That's how they could get it done so quickly. They were in a rush. We've got to get this done before sundown. It's already probably four or maybe a little bit later by the time Jesus gives up his breath. He dies. They get over to the pilot. They get that meeting with Pilate. He, he comes and checks. It's getting close. They've got to get this done. So most likely the servants help in taking Jesus' body carefully from that cross, carrying him to the tomb and preparing his body. You see, the third thing that, jo- that Joseph does is he supplies all the materials in the tomb for burial. Look at verse 46. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, he wrapped him in the linen shroud, and he laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. Carefully, he takes the body of Jesus, the one he followed, the one he loved, the one he was willing to risk his life for. It was a very quick but respectful burial. Though they were not able to anoint him with spices, as we'll see later, that the ladies had to come two days later to anoint him with oil. They did the best they could with the time allotted. They had to come back after the Sabbath to finish the job, but as they lay him in the tomb, there's no one to speak over Jesus' body. There's no procession. There's no one to rejoice. Just these women and Joseph and his servants. The fourth thing he does is he secures the tomb for safekeeping as it continues in 46, the last part of 46. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. This was a large stone that could be rolled back and forth to protect them from either grave robbers and or to even mark the identity of the owners of the tomb. It most likely was his family tomb, just cut out with a portion for him. Now, what you and I go through this is Mark goes through this very quickly. And in reality, all the Gospels do when it comes to Jesus' burial. 
It's very easy for us to pass over it very quickly. But what we must recognize is that Joseph's actions come at great risk to him as it shows and demonstrates his allegiance and identity as a follower of Jesus. This was not some just, oh, I'll just help someone out, but this would identify him to all of his compatriots. You are a follower of Jesus. We crucified him, we denied him, we rejected him, we betrayed him, but look what you're doing here. Joseph went to much personal cost and risk in requesting the body of Jesus and taking care of him. It was also his own personal family tomb that he used. This would identify him as disciple of Jesus to the council. Joseph would have no idea to this point how they would respond to that information. But what we see simply in these six or seven short verses is Mark is recording and giving us evidence that Jesus was buried. And the only one that you bury is someone who has died. It is a final act. It is the closing of the door. And as you and I come to this portion, we must come to understand this is what Scripture is telling us. But what does it mean for you and I? A writer from the Ligonard Ministry writes that the Heidelberg Catechism gives us insight into the significance of these passages of Scriptures. It says, according to that catechism, Jesus' burial testifies that he really dies. Now, that to you and I, that seems like, well, that's, that seems kind of moronic. I mean, everyone believes he dies. But we have to recognize that this event has more than just, uh, just an eyewitness or just something simple to it. You see, this testimony to the actual death of the Savior is important. It's given all that we have said about the curse of God and the satisfaction of his wrath. You see, if there were any doubt that Jesus had really died, there would be doubt as to whether the Father had actually meted out his wrath on Christ. Death is the sentence that is pronounced on sinners, you and I. For the wages of our sin is what? But death. There is none righteous. We are all under this curse. And death is requirement for atonement. If Jesus had not died, we would have no assurance that the demands of God's law were met in Christ. There would be no foundation for you and I believing that we are at peace with God. We read of that earlier in Romans. How could Paul speak so assuredly of these events? The account of Jesus' burial in today's passage is more than just a record of historical fact. For Christ's burial proves that Jesus truly died and that he endured the curse for his people. Speaking earlier of the event for the Muslims. You see, the account of Jesus' burial gives us value for defending our faith. For Muslims believe that Jesus never died on the cross, but was taken up to heaven. Some members of the Jesus Seminar, it's a true group that that researches whether or not Scripture is real and the ministry of Jesus was real. They teach that scavenging dogs ate Jesus' corpse. But these positions are completely groundless for the sources written the soonest after Jesus' ministry were completed. These four Gospels all agree that Jesus really died and that Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus. 
So when we see names in scriptures, when we see witnesses in scriptures, it's not just something just to fill in the blanks, but there's something for our faith. There's value for you and I. Finally, Matthew Henry, he's a theologian in the 18th century, wrote, points out that there was more significance in Jesus' burial in the garden tomb that you and I may even see. He writes that it was in the Garden of Eden, death and the grave first received their power. And now in the garden, they are conquered, disarmed, and triumphed over. Amen? In the garden of Christ began his passion, and from a garden he would rise and begin his exaltation. Turn with me, if you would, real quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What is the importance of the burial of Jesus Christ? Why does Mark record this? Why does he name names? When 1 Corinthians turned to chapter 15, famous portion of scripture, very familiar to you. In chapter 15, this belief was the foundation that Jesus was buried of the early church. In this passage, we read an early catechism written by the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 3. Paul writes, For I delivered of you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according with the Scriptures, and that he was what? Buried. And that he was raised in the third day accordance with the Scriptures. Now you and I usually go, yes, Christ died and Christ arose. But we forget the importance of being buried. Pastor James Boyce writes that there's several reasons why the New Testament stresses here the burial of Jesus. You'll see these on the notes as we go if you're taking notes. Number one, the burial proves that Jesus really died. Now this may seem obvious, but this is something that you and I have to realize. For if he had not been buried or not been buried as he was, after the centurion had certified to Pilate that Jesus was truly dead, we must realize that, is he dead Yes, the centurion says he is. I didn't have to break his leg. We also see Joseph of Arimathea. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin who were antagonistic towards Christ. He accompanied by Nicodemus gives a careful preparation of the body. And they put it in a new tomb that had been sealed with a large stone. In and of itself, we get great evidence to the burial, the death of Christ. If none of that had happened, it would be impossible for skeptics to argue that Jesus never really had died. That he only seemed to have died, perhaps to have swooned. And there's a swoon theory that Jesus was just in a trance and he seemed as if he was dead. And that afterwards he was able to be revived and convinced his followers that he triumphed over death. But the burial of Jesus assures us that Jesus was really dead and that his resurrection was a true resurrection. It sets up what we're going to see of next week. The details of the burial fulfilled scriptures. The most obvious passage is that is found in Isaiah 53.9 where the prophet writes that he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. What a great passage, speaking the Messiah. Assigned a criminal's death, but buried with a rich, buried in a rich man's tomb. And what we see once again, is even though you and I read through these things quickly, scripture being fulfilled, all given for a purpose. And then thirdly, and one I think is very important, 
One that's not so obvious to all is that the burial really has theological significance. Now, and again, as soon as we say those big words, we just start to blank out. But I want you to follow with me. Because when we come to this burial of Jesus, it has a very important significance to you today, right now. And that's where we're going to land this morning. It may be obvious, but it strikes us when we study what it says about the grave in the Old Testament and about the burial of Jesus in the New Testament by Paul. In the Old Testament, it speaks of the grave with really dread and dreary things. It says, in the morning will I go down to the grave. Or in Samuel, the cords of the grave coiled about me. Other, often the word translated as grave in our bodies, or in the Bible, is the word sheol, which has overtones of hell. As in Psalms, where he speaks about the anguish of the grave. Or in Job, where he calls it the land of gloom and deep shadows. And you and I understand that. For us, death and burial is something that's dreadful. It's not something we look forward to. It's not something we rejoice in. The Old Testament gives us that type of experience. To say that Jesus not only died but also was buried in the grave means that he descended as low as he could go in order to raise you and I up in heaven. One writer says, Jesus endured not only the pain and suffering and the curse of death, but even the terror of the grave so that he could save his people from this forever. Could you imagine Jesus' mother these three women, Joseph, Arimathea, uh, Nicodemus, and even the disciples. It is now finished. There is no hope in their eyes. Jesus is on that cross. He will not survive. And then the death cry comes from him as he says it is finished. And he gives up his spirit. You can see as from a distance, his body go lax. Jesus is dead. We read about this last week. We've been following him for three years. We've listened to his stories. We had laughed with him. We have cried with him. We have ate with him. We've traveled with him. We've cast out demons with him. We've healed people with him. He gave us the same power that he did, but he's dead. This Messiah who Anna and Simeon and, Matt and Luke says, this is the consolation of Israel. The Messiah, the Savior of God, the one of Abraham is dead. You can imagine them looking at on the cross and just hoping. Do you see his eyes fluttering? Do you see his hands twitching? Is there any left? Could someone stop this? It's enough, okay? We give up. We'll stop preaching. We'll stop teaching. Just, just take him off the cross. It's done. What a burial is, is a slamming of the door. It is done. There's a separation that you and I in this world feel that this is finally done. Hence, many times I've been at funerals with Christians and non-Christians alike. And when the funeral is being done and the casket is either shut or open or whether it's not even there, you see people are just wailing because they have a view of the Old Testament of death. That we will no longer see them. There is no longer hope. There is no longer any healing. Could you imagine? 
as these ladies are preparing his body. Joseph carefully putting him down. They see that there is no longer any hope. To them, Jesus is dead. In their minds, they are not thinking that Jesus said, this will happen. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried, but I'm going to rise again. To them, they're not even thinking resurrection. They're just thinking he's dead. The ladies, when they come to the tomb, as we'll see next week, they were not expecting a resurrected Savior. They were coming to finish their burial job of anointing him with spices and oils because they did not have enough time on Friday. See, that's the Old Testament view, so to speak, of death. That's our view many times of death. And the gospel seemed fit to give us that picture of death that is done. The earthly ministry of Jesus is done. Yet, there is more to this death and burial than you and I need to see. In Romans, Paul speaks of Christians, and we'll see a little bit of this next week. In Romans, Paul speaks of Christians having been buried with Jesus in his death. We think about death and resurrection, but the Bible says, you and I are buried with Christ. You know, let's do this. Let's let's turn to Romans real quick. This is free. You don't have to pay for this. Romans chapter 6, very quickly. Paul has given his defense, his apology of the Christian. He's given us a great legal treatise here. And in chapter 6, look at verse 5. He's talking about Christ being raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in newness of life. But look at verse 5, I believe it is. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, look at this, we shall be certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Okay, We think of that, his death and his resurrection. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Right? We got that. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he now lives into God, uh, so you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. What you and I need to see is the theological significance, the importance of his death. Not only does it prove that Jesus truly died and accomplished what God had set for him, but it also helps us understand that just as Christ died and was raised, he was buried. It was finished. The reason that the burial is an important step, even beyond death, is that the burial puts the deceased person, the person who has died, out of this world permanently. That's why we come to funerals and we give our memorials, we give our speeches. We are saying what? Goodbye. We are putting that person and saying we are now transferring that person, hopefully, gratefully, to a better place. The same way that's what we're saying, not only of Christ, but of ourselves. You see, a corpse is dead to life. There is a sense, though, in which it can be said to be still in life as long as he's around. But when that placed in the ground and he's covered with earth, it is removed from the sphere of this life permanently. 
It is gone. That's why Paul, who wanted to emphasize the finality of our being removed from the rule of sin and death to the rule of Christ, he emphasizes this burial. It is intensifying what he's saying about death to sin earlier. He says, you've not only died to sin, but you have been buried in it. To go back to sin once you've joined Christ is like digging up a dead body. And this is where I want to park for a moment. For Jesus was dead. You would not go into his body and pull it out and make it some type of icon. To pull him out and put him and say, let us now worship him, now let us serve him, would have been foolish. But you see people doing that each and every day. Whether it's ancient uh, worship and ancestor worship or other types of iconic. You see, when we baptize those that have denied themselves and taken up their taken up their cross, those that have confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, we are saying that you and I are buried in the likeness of his death and that we're going to be raised to walk in newness of life. And so here's what I want to ask you and here's what I want you to think of as we come to a close. Jesus died and he was buried. In the same way, he says that we are now dead to sin. In his death, we have found forgiveness and an alien righteousness that's not our own. But you and I are grave robbers. You see, you and I, who have died in Christ, continually go and dig up that old body of sin and pull it out and worship it and want to serve it. So let me ask you this morning, what sins, what the part of your old life are you still living and pulling out and worshiping? What is it that needs to be buried, sealed with a tomb, and just put with centurion guards and say, don't pick that up? You know, we have two little dogs. God bless them. But both of them have a propensity to find dead birds and dead little animals and want to bring them in and play with them. One time I found a possum in our bedroom. Thinking it was dead, I went to pick it up, but then I realized what the term possum actually means when it says he's acting possum. But you and I are like that. When Christ was buried, they quickly and quietly put him to his grave. You and I have to realize that we are dead to sin. That's the analogy. That's the picture. And when it says that he was buried, it's more than just a historical fact. There's a theological significance in which you and I need to realize that we too are dead to our sins. Die to self. He says, take up your cross and follow me. So let me ask you, especially before we come to the table, what old sins? The Bible tells us the old is passed away. Behold, a new is here. I'm crucified with Christ. I'm buried. I'm united with Christ. What sins are you still playing with? See, the reason you struggle with sin is you haven't buried that old body, that old nature. It may be dead, but you keep poking it with a stick. You keep dragging it in wanting to wring some fun out of it. I tell you what, let's do like Joseph of Arimathea. Let's kill it. Let's put it in the tomb and recognize that we have been buried with Christ and we've been united with him both in his death and his burial. Now next week we're going to see the glorious truth of the resurrection. But let us not forget that the burial 
is more than a historical record, but it shares with us how you and I ought to live our lives in burying those sins, recognizing that we're dead, that old self, that old man is gone. It's been killed. Father, I pray that you just give us wisdom to know these things. Sometimes they can be so difficult to understand. And we just have a habit of reading your word and just going through it so quickly, not always understanding, or just going through it and just saying, oh, I I know this. Lord, let us read your word with discernment. Give us wisdom as we read these things. Help us to see the significance of your burial, that it gives evidence that Christ died, that it was true, that it was finished. And because of that, as we saw last week, we have forgiveness of sin and we also have We have a right standing with God, but yet even then our old self has died, but it needs to be buried. We need to to have that finality. We need to to walk away from it, see the permanence that it's gone. I thank you that Christ was buried on my behalf. Father, I pray that that would make an inroads in my thinking and in my heart this morning. Let us recognize that we are dead to sin, no longer enslaved to it, Let the buried stay buried. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.